I didn't even know I had COVID. I couldn't tell at all. I had no symptoms at all. I found out on complete accident. I actually went into the hospital for something completely different. And then I found out that my cancer was back and I had COVID. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was pretty messed up. You're listening to Duluth Story Project. True stories from our community, plus the very special journey of a raccoon named Bob. All told by artists. This is Elijah's story. Yeah, when I was a kid, I had lymphoma. And like, I had a cancer cell in this lymph node up here. And then when I, just when that whole thing happened, it was because I had a swollen lymph node right here and I didn't know, you know, I kind of just am really uptight about that stuff because of cancer. They, yeah, they took my blood and like, that's how they check for COVID too or something. And then they were like, your cancer's back and you have COVID. I'm like, wow. So I was just like, yeah, I was like, I, can't believe it. It's crazy, but it's actually, it's actually good. Like they found it really early. So I've been doing like, I don't do chemo at this time. Cause that's how I used to do it. I do, uh, immuno stuff, immunotherapy, but, but before all that, I was in rush city prison. There was a riot happening my first day there. So we all got locked down. And then for four days, we were later for, for like four days later, we were supposed to get off. And then they handed out these Minnesota department of corrections memos that said, uh, due to COVID we'll be doing recreation quarter by quarter in your units so like we were basically going to be locked down all day except for an hour and that's how it was for three months yeah yeah dude they took our temperatures every morning and if you didn't they sent you to the hole like that was my first experience there i was like dude this is really serious because it kind of made it seem like the apocalypse and the lockup aspect of covid is ridiculous it's so it's it's so bad like and even the jails and stuff are bad but when you walk into saint cloud prison like that is the worst human treatment i've ever seen it's ridiculous i didn't even have like a book for four days just had to sit there literally just sitting up in a room like four like four stories up you can't see down you can't see a clock you can't see anything all you have is your bed your sheets and your blanket you don't you, you can't get on the phone you get, you get a half hour out of your room every other day if something's not going on, you know? And if something's going on in your flag time, then, oh, well, you're asked out and you don't get one. That's how, that's, they, that's how they do it right now. It's like, dude, it's not fair and you can't do anything about it. It sucks. One day, like, they, like, locked us all down and put a whole bunch of people that just came in on the side of the general pop unit that's now supposed to be, like, a single unit for all, like, these people that just came in. And they put a whole lot of new people in our unit and, and, our, and shared our flags with them. And I'm like, dude, you guys are sitting up here bitching about COVID. How are you going to bring in somebody that could possibly, like, a bunch of people that could possibly have it and contaminate this unit? And the sergeants are like, we're working with what we can. And I'm like, dude. It just doesn't make sense. It's frustrating because you have no say in it. You know, you can't, can't do anything. Some of them, some of them, the jail staff, you know, a lot of them are like, a lot of them don't have control over it. A lot of them are like, just can't do anything, man. I know it sucks. I wish I could help you, but I can't because it's, you know, 
then the sergeants try to say the same thing and it's just like ugh, whatever <laughs> and then tell different jail administration well you know what dude i did i wish we could sit here and monitor their plans because this is ridiculous it looks absolutely nuts can't put a whole wad of people that might have COVID and then say, oh, COVID regulations. Like, okay, now what are we going to do? What? I mean, you might as well let them come home with them, dude. You know? And we're getting locked down because of this stuff, which is like, and for somebody that's going through a, a trial for like something that'll catch me 12 years, that's not cool. Like, that's just stressing me the hell out. You know what I mean? I mean, I've had cops arrest me where they just gang up on me because because they know who what I've been about and what I've done. They judge people on that. And when they do, they don't really think about how that... Not too long ago, I got beat up by cops. Like a month and a half ago, in Duluth. And it was all because they left my phone on the street and brought me to the squad, you know? And I was like, dude, can you guys grab my phone off the street so it doesn't get ran over, you know? You shouldn't leave my phone. Like, you don't have to... It's. They just basically made it their goal to just not worry about it. As I'm sitting here like, dude, it's just right there. And they're just trying to force me into the squad car. And I'm not trying to hear it because I'm a little drunk and whatever. It's not an excuse on my part. But at the same time, my finger is still broken from that. It's still all swollen. Yeah, they messed me up. And they are... <laughs> That's why I say I think it'll always be this way. Because people don't understand. Like military forces and cops. They're basically... They're kind of like watching each other's six, just like anybody else here out here, you know, on the streets. So, you know, they just kind of act like they're a little gang, I guess. But I, I like Duluth. I like living here. But it's just kind of... Kind of where everything's always been. So it's kind of like you walk around and you're like, oh, you know, here goes so-and-so. Still doing the same stuff. And now, coming to you in dazzling 180 degree stereo. Oh, 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 stereo, stereo. The Raccoons, Chapter One The Awareness. He hadn't heard any noises out of the ordinary. None of the telltale, heavy, clumsy footsteps humans make. No one-sided conversations into a phone. The creek was flowing as usual. He poked his head out of the drain pipe and sniffed the air. Nothing alarming. His still face had the typical black mask-looking markings that all raccoons have. He was plump, but not exceedingly fat, and didn't have any scars on his nose, nor did he have a clipped ear. He was unextraordinary and might as well be named Bob. Bob and the other raccoons had been noticing things. The people had changed. They were behaving differently. And they'd been hearing from other animals about changes in how the people were acting too. They were staying inside and close to their homes. They were standing further from each other and they were covering their mouths. Their trash was different. They talked uneasily of a noisy and a vague growing threat. Now, Bob knew about this kind of menace, the kind that wants to eat you, but was something trying to eat the people? Now, Bob, like most raccoons, was curious. Curious and hungry, and soon he'd find out more about the people and how they were changing. 
He peered from the edge of the small wooded area at the road that had always been a flood of vehicles, always a dangerous place for a raccoon. Now it was a drip. He ambled across the road, sniffing, always for trash. But this time, his mission was clear. Not to dig for old chicken bones and burger wrappers, but for a truth, an explanation. And even his search for the big water, equally present in his mind, would have to wait. As Bob came to a wooden fence, his thoughts were pushed out by a pressing decision, over or under. He scanned the bottom of the fence for holes, but nothing, and no loose boards. He rolled his body in a tilted way and came to a rest with his shoulders and neck pressed against the fence and the rest of his body lying on the ground. And he looked up and saw a branch that reached across the fence extending from a nearby tree. Looks like it was going to be over. But before he could muster the will to move, he noticed something on a nearby apartment building. There was a curtained but lit window. The curtain held a silhouette. It was of a person sitting in a position that had become familiar to the animals, first pointed out to Bob by an annoying squirrel. The people were doing it a lot, sitting for long spells, slumped over with their heads in their hands. This is Addie's story. The first time I learned about COVID, well, like in general, I was just coming back to college from our winter break. So, you know, January 2020, oh, like late January 2020, At the time, it was just like, there's this virus in China and nobody knew that much about it. And everybody was like, oh, that's unfortunate. But the thing everybody was focused on was the Australian wildfires. So it really didn't register for me. I was also busy, you know, training to be an RA in college. So it was kind of like the last thing on my mind. I remember when it started to get really serious, at least in the U.S. I didn't really know that much about it until March, like a couple weeks into March. I was with one of my staff mates in his room, and we both got the news and stuff. It was getting really, really bad in New York, and our school was closing down. We were in his dorm room trying to process together, and first we were like, oh, well, school's closing down. That's cool. We were getting an extra week off, so of course everyone was excited. But none of us knew what was actually going to happen. They shut down the school, and then we ended up doing Zoom classes for maybe a week or two, And then they started sending everybody home. It was kind of scary because I was in New York at the time. All we were hearing was that New York City was one of the epicenters. And we were in upstate New York and the cases were much, much lower. So everyone was upset because you're sending, you know, a lot of students home to New York City and Long Island where it was really, really bad. They didn't want to bring things home to their family or go home just to catch the virus. You know, I stayed a week longer than some people. I didn't really want to go home. I don't love my hometown. And I knew, just like based on the reaction, that there wasn't going to be very many people following COVID rules there for like the most part. And at that time, it already started getting politicized a lot. All my friends got sent home. And then I was just kind of like alone on campus. You know, my resident director was like, you should go home. Otherwise, they're going to start consolidating people into the dorms on campus, you know, so they can close down a bunch of the resident halls. And moving was, well, they said you can come and have your parents help you move out, but you can't let them into the building at all. So that was hard. People had to move their whole lives out by themselves, and there wasn't really that much short-term storage and everything. It was pretty scary. We all just ended up going home at the end of March and stayed there until school started up again in August. I personally had a really rough time with that because, you know, the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020 was like the happiest time of my life. 
And then basically this came and it just kind of snapped something in my brain almost. You know, because I stayed a week longer and was totally by myself for like a week, I just kind of had a mental breakdown. I was crying myself to sleep every night. Even though I knew I was going to be lucky enough to be in a place where I'd be relatively safe, you know, some of the people that I was closest to were going to the epicenter of it all. I was really worried that I might never see my friends again because, well, one, I didn't know if we'd be coming back to school, but also like, you know, if they got it. The news is just inundated with people dying and you're saying goodbye to your friends and you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see them again. You live in totally different parts of the state, hours away, and there's curfews and everything. So it was really hard. And the university was horrible about giving any information to students. Of course, you know, it was kind of up in the air for them as well. But, you know, being part of residential life, I'm kind of like the in-between for the students as well. I constantly had residents coming up to me like, what do we do? What are we doing? And I just had to be like, I don't know. Well, they're not telling me anything either. It was hard not being able to help the people that have been helping all year long. But it's also hard because I was going to be totally away from the people that I'd basically been living with for the past three years. It was really, you know, mentally, it was just hard on me. I never confronted any sort of mental health issues, even though, you know, looking back and learning more about myself, I've, I've struggled with that in the past. This kind of brought it all on and I, I didn't have any choice, you know, but to be like, okay, you're having some issues but I don't know really what to do. There weren't any resources out there either. The only resources that I knew about were on campus and I was being sent home to this tiny little town. I was kind of lost, to be honest. I did get it, (laughs) COVID. (sighs) I got it this past March. So in 2021, it wasn't going home. It was coming back to school. That was the worst of it. You know, when they brought us back to this world, Well, there were measures that they took, but they kind of put it all on the residential staff to enforce everything, which most of us are students or grad students. So that's really hard. It's already hard enforcing rules when you're the same age as the people that you're trying to enforce. But also, I'm trying to avoid being around people as much as possible, so I can't see it. The town that I was in is relatively diverse compared to the normal population of most towns in upstate New York. So, you know, bringing all those students back from New York City, from Long Island, you know, we have a really big Greek life culture too. They, of course, weren't really following COVID rules either. It kind of turned the town into a hotspot when they brought us all back. I mean, the college needs money and the money that they get is from, well, because it's a public school, most of the money that they get is from the room and board. So they wanted people on campus. I felt strongly about how Central Res Life did not handle it well wasn't treating the RAs or the students right. I ended up quitting after the first semester and moved off campus into downtown. I got COVID that second semester. I hadn't seen anybody for like three weeks and a couple of my friends were having a really small get together. So I was like, okay, I guess they had gone out to what was supposed to be, you know, a COVID safe bar. (laughs) Like, you know, one of the ones where you go and you sit down and you could only be there if you're ordering food. But it's a college town, it's a hotspot. And somebody working had COVID. They gave it to my friends who then gave it to me. It was just awful. I was in a very terrible apartment building, you know, and my COVID coincided with when they decided to replace the boiler without telling anyone. So 
We didn't have heat for three weeks in the middle of winter. I was just ill in bed. I couldn't really move. I didn't have to go to the hospital, but I mean, I had pretty bad symptoms and they only gave us a little space heater. I basically couldn't leave my room because it was like 30 degrees in the rest of my apartment. There's the constant coughing, oh, shortness of breath, walking around, constant headache, you know, that sort of thing. But also weird things that I hadn't really experienced with any sickness before. My eyes hurt all the time. So I couldn't wear my contacts for like weeks on end. My, my heart rate would speed up a lot. You know, just doing simple things. My back hurt, just doing nothing. I felt like I really couldn't move a lot of the time because it literally just hurt my spine. My body just ached all over. It really was like the flu on steroids. <laughs> it took me a really, really long time to be able to walk any sort of distance without having to stop and take breaks. You know, I've been an athlete all my life. So I was like, right, this is not normal. Who knows how that will continue to affect me? Because obviously, you know, gyms and stuff are still closed. I haven't really tried that much since getting COVID, you know, to get back into exercising as much as I was. I really have no clue how I'll be able to transition back into that. Well, it's hard now because I'm in a totally new town. I don't really have that many friends yet, which, well, is kind of sad to say. I'm really looking forward to just being able to feel safe being with people again. I mean, even now it's kind of hard because my cohort is trying to plan things and just like being together and I'm really hesitant. Just because we're people that are, you know, going to be more at risk because we're working with communities and stuff and we're in jobs where we're potentially interacting with a bunch of people. So, you know, then to come together and hang out all the time, well, it's kind of terrifying to think about. That's something... I want to be able to hang out normally with people without being scared that I'm going to spread something to them and they're going to spread something to me. I really hope we just get some sort of better defense against Delta because I just can't imagine having COVID again. Like, that would be horrible. My fear of getting again is honestly really, really strong in my mind. So I'm hoping for a day when I'm not terrified that I'll get it again and potentially have it worse than I did before. And now, back to our friend Bob, the raccoon, and the mysterious silhouette in the window. What's going to happen next? Find out right now in Chapter 2, The Silhouette. Bob only looked at the sad silhouette for a moment. After all, it was a sight he figured he'd see again soon. These days he found people slumped forward like this so often he usually took no notice at all. He pushed himself up off the ground and peeked through the slats of the fence to see if there was a garden on the other side. The people had a lot more gardens than they used to, and they spent a lot more time in them. An older woman had tossed Bob a cherry tomato once. It was only a cherry tomato and underripe, and he had tossed it aside himself almost immediately and a rat had grabbed it. But a cherry tomato was better than getting yelled at and chased off like usual. Bob didn't see a garden on the other side this time, and he didn't see any people either. Now, climbing wasn't one of Bob's strengths, but, garden or not, he felt it was important to get over the fence. And sometimes you have to do something hard to get over a fence. As he moved towards the tree, he looked over again to the apartment building. He was struck by an urge to check in on the silhouette even though it hadn't seemed particularly important. And it was still there, in the same position, slumped and still. So he began moving up the tree the best he could, tugging at branches and clawing at bark. 
It took him a while, but he was finally within reach of the branch that extended over the fence, and he thought to himself that it seemed quite a bit higher up now than it did when he was on the ground. He paused to sniff for trash, and he looked back to check in on the silhouette again. And this time it had changed. The figure was standing now, and somehow the silhouette stuck there even though the curtain had been parted to one side, held by the figure's hand. None of the lights in the apartment were on. The backlight framing the figure was from a computer, the only source of light in the dark apartment. The figure's head lowered a little, and a light clicked on suddenly from below, illuminating its face. It was a woman. She was checking her phone, but after a moment she raised her head and looked out the window. She was looking in the direction of Bob. She was looking at Bob. She stared for a moment, then held her phone in front of her face and tapped it with her thumb. She lightly tossed the curtain behind her, turned off the phone, and the silhouette returned. Later, the woman would paint a picture of Bob and title it, My Little Friend in the Dark. It wasn't a very good painting, as it was something that she had very little experience doing, but someone bought it for $200. Bob would never know about this painting, or that he had made a friend. He also would never know what a big difference $200 could make in a raccoon's life, because he didn't know what money was or how to use it. He was just a raccoon. Now that the silhouette was back in its same familiar slump, Bob hoisted himself up onto the branch that hung over the fence and began making his way toward the end of it. Addie's story continued. I was super excited for the move here because I've never lived anywhere other than upstate New York in my whole life. You know, I was super excited to be in another spot, but, you know, living in another college town was kind of scary. Well, especially the housing situation is such a shit show. That's obviously been a struggle across the whole country, but it's very difficult to do. You know, landlords, property management companies, you know, have reduced hours because of the pandemic and they aren't in their offices as much. I was honestly just scared because we were, you know, we were driving here, which means we had to stop at pit stops along the way. I, I was safe at home because I'd been quarantining. But what if I picked up COVID at one of the rest stops? You know, people are coming from anywhere and then I become a spreader in my new city. I'm not the type to get homesick, but, you know, I knew I was going to be limited on what I could do in a new city. I do have a roommate, which has been awesome to just have a person to talk to in a totally new city. But that aspect of the pandemic was, you know, definitely scary, especially with my like mental health problems. I was I was worried that I'd kind of fall back into that mindset that I'd been in for, you know, for months and just starting to get out of it. I didn't want to fall back into that hole of not having the energy to get out of bed, not having the energy to really do anything because I felt super isolated again. The town I'm from is super, super white, like 97% white. And also, you know, very much on the conservative end of things. When I heard about the whole George Floyd thing, there was a guy I was um, particularly close to and I wanted to reach out to. He was in the city and there's protests and everything happening. I hadn't talked to him recently because we'd just you know, been having issues. We'd just gotten out of a relationship. I wanted to reach out to him and have him know that I was thinking about him and hoping that he was safe. The BIPOC friends that I did have were pretty much all from the city. I knew that they were very politically active, so I was worried about my friends. But at the same time, I knew this was an opportunity for sure. It's a horrible, horrible thing that happened. But 
It was an opportunity for people to wake up. In my town, we had one Black Lives Matter protest, which is more than I thought would occur. But there was a lot of backlash. I was just trying to do what I could to talk to other white people about the importance of learning and everything. That was that was the role I tried to take. Obviously, I can never speak for a Black person or African heritage person. I would never try to do that. So I was like, this is an opportunity for you to really kind of get your head out of your ass and realize these things are happening and you can't just continue to ignore them. Uh, that sort of thing. One thing I learned was that people were at least willing to have a discussion, which was more than I thought would happen. That was good. But at the same time, it's not really enough just to have a discussion. As a white person and a fairly privileged white person, I know the role I can take. Being active and doing my best to amplify Black voices and point people to resources that aren't just whitewashed, you know, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of backlash against it because my community in general is very poor. Something that they value above pretty much all else is property ownership and protective property. So as soon as any sort of looting and stuff happened, it pretty much turned them against the Black Lives Matter protest, even if there were a lot of false narratives with the looting. It was really difficult to have those arguments. I remember one day we had my um, grandparents over for dinner and they started talking about it. And I, I tried. I tried. But I just had to get up and leave because they were making me so upset. I knew they were more, they were more towards, you know, conservative and I'm basically a radical leftist to them. That isn't necessarily my actual political leanings, but in comparison, I basically am in their minds. They're automatically unwilling to hear anything I want to say. They're like, well, you're a traitor to American values or whatever. Clearly, we can't have a conversation about this. Makes me really, really upset because this is something that doesn't directly affect me but it directly affects some of the people I love the most in this world. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I was super directly affected because you know there was none of the violence that happened in Minneapolis. Obviously, I'm a white person, so I wasn't being targeted in any sort of way. But what came out of my hometown was not <laughs> the reaction I was hoping for. It ended up just turning into a Blue Lives Matter rally cry and that was so disappointing to see. Duluth Story Project is a program of Zeitgeist. All stories are verbatim, faithfully told by artists, and the names have been changed. Elijah was read by Zachary Stouffer. Addie was read by Jesse Peters. The Raccoons is written by Robert Lee and performed by Blake Thomas. Duluth Story Project is created by Mary Fox, Dennis Johnson, Alexandra Duncan, and Robert Lee, with help from Mackenzie McCullum, Amy Demmer, Sarah Luke, Gabby Mirabitu, and Ari Kilgore. Sound design, music, and audio production by Blake Thomas. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and from Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation, funded in part by the Anonymous Friend Fund, the Dr. and Mrs. Bernard Becker Charitable Fund, and the Living Legacy Fund, with additional support from Cartier Insurance. Thank you for listening. To make a donation and for more information, head to DuluthStoryProject.com.
and from Duluth Superior. Out of Duluth Superior. Can I just take that last part? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat>